and 14, often as we worship together, having as one of our key parts of our music ministry philosophy is singing songs that are theologically rich, deep, confront us with truth we need for the week to come. Two thoughts from that last song that just grabbed me as we sang was that Christ has made an end to my sin. So easy to slip out the tongue, but what an amazing, eternally glorious thought that my sin has been dealt with completely and fully in Christ. And then to think of being accused by Satan, of which we have much to be accused, and raising our eyes of faith to the throne room of heaven, and seeing the one who made an end to that sin, standing before the Father, pleading for us, saying our name saying he or she is mine. He deserves our worship. It's so good to worship together. John 14 is where we're at this morning, verses 12 through 14. If your family experience has been anything like our family experience, we entered into some point in our later elementary years with our kids, early junior high, where we started thinking, like, maybe we can leave for a couple minutes, and they won't kill each other, or the house won't burn down, and so we start testing that theory and, you know, leave them for a little while. We go to Walmart, come back, and everything's good. And, you know, eventually you kind of get a little more brave and think, I, you know, I think we can do this, and, and we'll give them uh, lots of, of things to do while we're gone. We'll give them a list of chores and uh, things to keep them occupied while we're away for our three or four hours on our much-needed shopping trip to Wichita or our date night that we've been missing for the last few months, whatever it is. And and we'll leave them a phone, right? And, and we'll, we'll tell them, if you need anything, call us. And in fact, more than that, we're going to check in with you. We're going to text the phone and see if, if you're all still alive and nobody's broken into the house and the neighbors aren't over there uh, keeping track of you, making sure you're all right. But if you need anything, you must simply pick up the phone and call us. Maybe you've had that experience from the kid's side uh, yeah, yeah, mom and dad, we got it, we're good, we're fine. You thought you were ready at four, you know, they're here at 14, finally saying it's time. You're like, it's about time that you figured out I'm responsible enough for you to go. Maybe you've had it from the parent side where you're trying to gauge when is this the right time, but you know inherently you need to keep them occupied and you need to give them access. And that's why we do that, right? When we leave them alone, we know that our absence could easily paralyze them. And send them into all kinds of, of lazy uh, activity that is not honoring to the Lord. Things that they could get caught up with that they ought not get caught up with and waste their time. And we also want them to know while we're gone that they have complete access to us. That we're available for them. It's just kind of wise parenting, right? We come to a similar reality in John 14 as Jesus prepares his disciples for his soon departure. It's a much more serious departure than going out to dinner or going to Sam's Club, of course. He is about to give his life as a ransom for many on the cross of Calvary. He then will rise from the dead and soon ascend into heaven to, as he said earlier in John 14, to prepare a place for his own so he can return and bring them to himself. As he said these things to them, they had lots of questions, right? In fact, the narrative is, is moved along in John 14 by the questions. Well, what about this, Lord, and, and what about that, and how does that work out? And most recently in verse 8, we studied Philip's question of, Jesus, show us the Father. The culmination of that text was Jesus' double command in verse 11, believe in me. 
believe in me. I have shown you the Father. I am God manifest to you. Believe in me. Let's start back in verse 8 as we prepare for our study of verses 12 through 14 this morning. Reading in verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. The tone of voice with which I read that is probably not how Jesus said it. It's just an astounding statement to me. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Do it. What is Jesus promising here? Before he leaves his disciples, he instructs them and he comforts them. That's what we've been seeing in John 13 and John 14. It's a dark moment for them. Jesus is about to uh, be led away into captivity as he is arrested, turned over by Judas. They needed, his disciples needed the light of truth in that dark moment. He's told them that they need to know the Father by believing in Him. He's reminded them, I revealed the Father to you by my very life, verse 9, my very words, verse 10, and my very works, verse 11. All of them have combined to let you know that I am one with the Father, and you know the Father through me. And by knowing the Father, Jesus is obviously talking about more than facts and trivia, right? He's talking about a relationship knowledge, knowing the Father, being at peace with Him and being made one with Him, as John 17 will describe. This is the basic heart of the gospel. You cannot know God, you cannot be at peace with God apart from the work of Jesus, His Son. He has come to make Him known and to make a way for you to know Him. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We cannot know God through religious achievement or religious effort or some religious experience. We cannot know God through some knowledge of all of the facts about God. Rather, we can only know God through a means He has provided. It is the means of His own Son. We only know Him through Christ. So two times in verse 11, Jesus says, believe in me. And now in verses 12 through 14, He builds on that truth with words of comfort. So that's the the instruction, the exhortation I'm leaving, you want to see the Father, believe in me. Now, verses 12 through 14, he's going to give words of comfort, and it's a a two-pronged promise. Believing in me, this will be what this looks like in verses 12 through 14. There's two obvious fruits of that belief in verse 11 in their lives in verses 12 through 14. What are those two fruits? Well, they'll do great things, and they'll have great help. That's the the double-pronged promise of Christ, that you believe in me, and if you do, you will do great things, and you will see great answers to prayer. 
So if you believe that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, that no one comes to the Father except through Jesus, and that you can know the Father through Him, then that belief will produce evidence of itself. That evidence will be great works and great answers to prayer. You've probably had this experience in your home, but we recently were embroiled in an epic battle with two mice in our house. And it was an epic battle. I almost lost. But I have conquered. I did a little jig over his grave, which happened to be the trash can. How did we know we had a mice problem? By its evidence. It left evidence, letting us know it was getting into our food, nasty little thing, and leaving things behind to let us know it had eaten our food, nastier little thing. This is the evidence that proves the point in a positive way. Forgive me for my crass illustration. This will also be the case for faith. If faith is true and real, if you do believe in Jesus, it will produce evidence proving that it is indeed there. And this is the encouragement Jesus gives to these disciples. As he's ready to leave them, he's telling them to believe in him, and he's letting them know, if you do believe in me, whoever believes in me, he says in verse 12, these fruits will be true in their lives. They will produce great works, and they will have great help. This is the promise that Jesus unpacks for us in these three short verses. He knows that his departure could be paralyzing, much greater than a parent leaving a home for a few hours. Him leaving earth, ascending to the right hand of the Father, could be paralyzing to the disciples. Don't you think you'd be prone to wonder, what in the world can we do without him here? He's been doing everything. We've tagged along. Yeah, he sent us out, and we did some things, but that was all in his name and by his power and under his commission. And we came back to him and reported to him, and then he did the rest. Now he has left. How are we going to do anything with this mission that he has given us to do? It would seem from a human perspective, having Jesus in the room is always the greater alternative, right? Having him around is always the better better option. And so he speaks to them a two-pronged promise to let them know that his departure is actually going to be good for them. That they will do great works and they will have great Help. Now, can I, before we get to those promises, can I just pause again and have you gaze upon our Lord? Think about where he is at and what is happening. Within minutes, in the darkness of the garden, he will be turned over by his betrayer to wicked and cruel men. Within hours, he'll be shamed and blasphemed and maligned and disbelieved and denied and condemned to die. Within hours, he'll undergo the greatest physical punishment ever known to mankind, ever invented to make your death slow and as painful as possible. More than that, in a matter of hours, he will hang underneath the weight of the righteous wrath of the holy God for sinners like you and me, making atonement for our sin. And here, in the upper room, Minutes before that is set into motion, Jesus is concerned for his disciples. He who needs great care, he who needs great comfort, he who will shed sweat drops of blood over the agony of what is ahead of him, he is concerned for his men, for his disciples. What a Savior. 
as he prepares them, he promises them two things. Promises them that in, their, in his absence they will do great things and they will have great help. The tremendous double-edged promise from our Lord to his disciples. They'll, they'll do great things and have great help. And this is the outcome of their faith in him, their belief in him. That's the promise of verse 12. Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do. This is a truism presented by our Lord. He, he prefaces it with that common phrase, truly, truly, I say to you. He said it dozens of time, times in the Gospel of John. You know every time he says it, he's countering something that they're prone to believe that isn't true, and he's telling them what's really true about what they're thinking. And so he says to them in this moment of disbelief and confusion, listen, here's the clear-cut reality. Truly, truly, I say to you, you've seen me do amazing works. I'm now leaving. Don't believe that the work is done. Don't believe that you need to hunker down in a holy huddle, shelter in place, and await my soon return. Don't think that the work that I set about is on pause until I come back. That's the logical assumption of the disciples and of every Christian since, right? That Christ is doing it. I don't need to do much until he returns. Hunker down and wait. Jesus once again clears the air. Truly, truly, I say to you, he points them to his plan. He says, I'm going to use you to accomplish great things in my absence. He says two things, and one builds on top of the other. He says, you'll do the works that I did, and then he says, you'll do greater works than the works that I did. This is an astounding promise. It's a a build-up of the promise. They'll not just maintain what Jesus has done. That's what he's saying. You'll not just do what I've done. You'll not just maintain it. You'll do more. It will expand and increase and grow. It will be greater. What in the world is Jesus promising here? You must ask that, right? Is he minimizing his work? Is he elevating the apostles and the disciples and putting them on par with him and the greatness of their works on his behalf? We know what it doesn't mean, both by logic and historical record. We know it does not mean that they will do works that are greater in nature or essence than Jesus, right? By logic, we know that. They're not God manifest, God in the flesh. They can't do the things that Jesus has done. We also know that by historical record. Read the book of Acts. Where do you see any of the apostles turning water into wine? Where do you see any of the apostles feeding 5,000 men plus families with five loaves and two fish? Where do you see any of the apostles healing a blind man who's been born blind by simply speaking a word? Where do you see any of the apostles raising a paralyzed man who's been paralyzed for 38 years? Where do you see any of that happening in the Acts of the Apostles? You don't. Because their works are not of the same par or greater than the nature and essence of the works of Jesus. They never brought forth a man out of the tomb who had been in there four days, right? Lazarus, John 11. We do know, however, from the historical record of the book of Acts that Jesus' 11 apostles did do many supernatural signs. So he does mean they will do works like what he's done. So Acts 3, Peter and John healed the paralyzed beggar. Acts 9, Peter healed the paralyzed Aeneas. At the end of Acts 9, we read of Dorcas, also called Tabitha, being raised from the dead. Acts 5 and Acts 19, many sick were healed simply by having Peter's shadow pass in front of them, or having a cloth that had touched Paul touch them. Amazing works. Works that only God could do through his apostles. 
But still, how are those works to be greater than those of Jesus? I think the answer to that question is found at the end of verse 12. When Jesus says, you'll do greater works than I do because I am going to the Father. This is the reason and also gives us a clue to why they are greater. So there's something about the soon departure of our Lord Jesus that will bring about these greater works of the apostles. Can you think of any potential answers here? What's going to happen after Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension that will bring about greater works? You're thinking of some. Let me give you two that I thought of. As Jesus prepares to leave, you think of his ministry ahead of time, and there's a, a door of revelation that swings on the hinge of the cross of Calvary. Prior to the cross work of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, there's confusion, there's darkness, there's shadows, there's, there's truth given, clearly spoken, and yet the apostles themselves are, what do you mean, Lord? Even in this very conversation in the upper room, they're asking him, what are you talking about? There's confusion and a darkness over their minds to understand the fullness of what Christ has said. That door will swing wide open on the hinge of the cross work of Christ. His death, burial, resurrection, and ascension will usher in a new age of clarity, of the brightness, of the light, of revelation, all because of the work of Christ. All flowing from the the power and the glory of the revelation of God as seen in the cross of Jesus. Before the cross, there's confusion. After the cross, there's clarity, not for everyone, of course, but for those upon whom God works by His Spirit. That's the second point that comes with the ascension of Jesus. The second glorious reality is the coming of the Holy Spirit, right? Jesus descends, and He says, when I descend, or when I ascend, I will send to you my Spirit. In fact, flip over quickly to John 16 and verse 7. We'll get to this in our study in a while, but verse 7, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. What's the advantage? That the Spirit will come. If I stay, he doesn't come. If I go, he'll come. I'll send him to you. So think of how that works itself out in the book of Acts. In Acts 1, they're told by the angel, stop gazing up into the sky, go into Jerusalem and wait for the Spirit. They go, what do they do? They go in the upper room and they pray. They plead with the Lord to keep his promise. In there they also pray for wisdom about appointing Judas' successor. And while they're praying in the upper room and waiting, the Spirit of God descends upon them. And what happens on the day of Pentecost? They're raised up as men of boldness and courage, speaking in tongues and ministering to all the various nationalities that were gathered in Jerusalem, the glories of Jesus as the Messiah, as the Jewish Messiah. And in power by the Holy Spirit, 3,000 souls are one to the Lord Jesus that day in faith. Think about where this is happening. This is in Jerusalem, where 50 days prior to the day of Pentecost, these same people had cried out with the Pharisees, crucify Him, crucify Him. Now, 50 days later, they're hearing the ministry of the apostles speak clearly the gospel of Christ, and many of them are cut to the heart, accosted by the power of the work of Jesus, and they are laid low, and they cry out, brothers, what should we do? 
repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So the very opponents to Christ have an explosion of faith because of the ministry of the apostles who have been filled with the Holy Spirit. Now that's greater than the works of Jesus in this sense. When Jesus ministered on earth for his three plus years, at most he had a couple of hundred faithful followers who stuck with him, though they all abandoned him during his crucifixion. They remained afterwards, restored to him when he appeared to them after he resurrected. And their response was in the hundreds. Here in the book of Acts, we see again and again and again the Spirit of God working in amazing ways, this great explosion of faith in the very place where Christ was crucified, and out from there to all the corners of the world through the ministry of the apostles. They become the foundation of the church as they take the glorious good news of Christ out from Jerusalem into Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world. And they go proclaiming Christ, empowered by the Spirit. And what does God do? He builds His church, making it a bright display of His glory. And in that sense, it's a furtherance of the work of Christ begun in His life and ministry, sealed by His death, burial, and resurrection, and exploded in His apostles, filled by His Spirit. In this sense, they will do greater works than Jesus done. So how does all that relate to you as you head into a new week and another Monday? How does it relate to me as I face the challenges of life in this world? Well, the promise is obviously given most clearly to the 11 in the upper room. Don't miss that. This promise of supernatural signs is given clearly to these 11 guys and to this office of apostle. We see that played out in the book of Acts in the days of the early church. But is that it? Is that where it stops? It's a promise to them and we just move on and rejoice that God kept his promise and that's your hope for today? Well, isn't there something here in the greater works for Jesus' followers that are to be done? Are we to just hunker down and wring our hands about our generation turning into the pre-flood generation where everyone does what is right in their own eyes and that's happening before your very eyes? You just hunker down in your little Christian bubble and your own little make-believe world and act like it's all going to be okay when Jesus returns, so just put up with it, pray through it, and God will rescue you out of it. Are we to sit back, pray, and plead for the Lord's return as he rescues us from a Romans 1 reality where people exchange the truth about God for a lie and God exchanges them and turns them over to all kinds of horrific rebellion against him and it's played out on every headline in your newspaper and on your website every day? What are we to do while we wait for the Lord and wait for his soon return? Well, the clear answer from the upper room is work while I am gone. You have a task to do. You will do the works I have done and greater works than these you will do. And that's the clear answer from the rest of Scripture, isn't it? Now, if if it was just here, maybe I would have trouble making the case. But this is the the truth of the apostles through the inspired scriptures to you about your role in Christ's church. To be at work while Christ is gone. Remember, this is the outflow of faith. This is the evidence of believing in Jesus. He alone saves you. His work has accomplished your salvation. But being saved, there's work to do. 
and he's appointed those works for you to do. Isn't that what he says in Ephesians 2? For by grace you are saved. It's a gift to you. It's not a works lest any man should boast. How does he end that in verse 10? For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So this is the the outworking of our faith, to walk in the good works appointed for us. This is why in Titus 2, 11 to 14, where Paul says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, godly, and upright lives in this present evil age. He goes on to talk about our blessed hope, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, in, in looking to that blessed hope, that we, have those, we are those who have been rescued by Jesus as his own possession who are zealous for good works. Zealous for good works. Not begrudging in the doing of them. Not doing them to earn or win favor with God in our justification somehow. That can't happen. But zealous for the good works because we've been purchased by the precious blood of Christ. Those good works are done in the context of our waiting for our blessed hope. So friend, if you have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ this morning, you know that your standing before God is secure. You know God through Christ. You've been forgiven from your sins by Christ's work on your behalf. And that faith will have evidence coming out of you that will put you to work. Because the reality is the time is short. The journey's almost over. The Lord is soon returning. The stakes are high. The reward is eternal. The cost is great. The opportunity is passing. The grace needed is given to you in abundant supply. As evidence of your faith, you need to be busy being faithful. If you have faith, you can't help it. As C.T. Studd once said, the missionary to Africa, only one life it will soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. The second promise of Christ in his absence is that they'll do good works. The second promise is that they will have great help. They'll have great help. They'll do great things and they'll have great help. Look again at what Jesus says in verses 13 and 14. Whatever you ask in my name, this will, I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will will do it. That's a massive promise. Don't you agree? Some promises you read through Scripture, you're like, I'm glad that's true, I'm glad that's true, I'm glad that's true. And there's some that capture your attention, and you're like, is that really true? You mean that, Lord? Like the promise in Psalm 1, that blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He should be like the tree planted by rivers of water, and he will produce fruit, I'm paraphrasing now, and in whatever he does, promise, in whatever he does, he will, remember, prosper. That's one of those promises you read along, you know, you're half awake in your devotions, and boom, that jumps off the page in screaming, blinking lights at you. Whatever I do will prosper. What's the background here? What do I have to do? What do I have to be before the Lord for that to be 
true. This is one of those promises for us. They will exercise their faith in his absence. They will work and they will pray. And he will answer. This really helps them think rightly about the the previous promise, doesn't it? About the works that they will do. So their works are related to their prayers, aren't they? They're not going to do the great works of verse 12 without the praying of verses 13 and 14. They're not independent of each other. They're interrelated to one another. It's a two-pronged promise. They go together. The great works they do will be Jesus answering the great prayers they pray because he's a great God who does great things. In faith-dependent prayer, they'll ask Jesus to work on their behalf in this world, and he will do it, and they will do great works in his name. So in verse 12, notice that they are doing the doing, correct? Verse 12, they're the ones doing the doing. You will do greater works than I did. Verses 13 and 14, it's Jesus doing the doing. You pray and I will do this. You ask me anything in my name and I will do this. This is the same thing, worked out from two different perspectives. It is God's promise to use human vessels like his disciples to accomplish his work in the world. They will not do his work of their own accord, by their own power, or for their own ends. They're human channels given divine power to administer God's works for his glory to meet human needs. And this is all carried along by faith-filled prayer. Now again, to prove to you that I'm not just making that link up between verse 12 and verses 13 and 14, think about how that works itself out in the book of Acts. So Acts 19.11, it says, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Who's doing the miracles? God and Paul, right? 1 Corinthians 3, 6 through 7, Paul says, I planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. 1 Corinthians 15, 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Philippians 4.13, facing horrific jail conditions and often not having his own physical needs met, he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can be content even in this scenario. Colossians 1.29, Paul says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. You see, Paul's working hard. He's laboring well. But it is God who's doing the work through him and in him. What really should stick out to you, however, from John 14 is the connection between those powerful works of God through his apostles and their dependence upon him in prayer. So by faith, they seek to work fervently for him, but they do so with deep, faith-filled prayer. Again, think of how this works itself out in the book of Acts. And I won't make you turn there. I'm just going to read it to you. If that is true, you should see it lived out, especially in Acts. And ongoing from there in every generation of the church. Acts 4, verse 31. Remember Peter and John are facing opposition for preaching the gospel in the temple. They've been arrested. They've been threatened with their life. Don't ever do this again or you'll die. 
They returned to the church. The church had been praying for them. They rejoiced together that they were counted worthy to suffer. They prayed to God in light of Psalm 2. Why did the heathen rage, Lord? We don't know, but we know that they who put Jesus to death, they might put us to death, but we're going to be faithful and courageous. And so they prayed. And verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 31, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. How did they continue being faithful? How did they continue doing the good works that had been appointed to them by their Savior? Carried along by dependent, faith-filled prayer. Acts 9 verse 40, Peter hears of Dorcas, his beloved sister who has died Peter comes on the scene, and he puts them all outside. He knelt down, and he prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. There was a ministry need before him. He could not do it himself in his own power. He could not make the dead alive. But he knew God had called him to that moment for such a time as this, so he prayed got on his face before the Lord and said, God, help me do what I can't do. Do to Tabitha what only you can do. And then he in faith proceeded with what he thought the Lord wanted him to do, which was to say to her, get up. She did. Acts 12, verse 5, James has been beheaded by the wicked Herod. Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. A few verses later, we read of Peter being miraculously freed by the angel who visits him, blinds the seeing eye so he can leave, opens doors that were closed, takes him to the church that is gathered praying in the upper room. And they rejoice together at answered prayer. Notice how this proves the oneness of Christ with God the Father. He's been making that point, hasn't he, in the upper room? I and the Father are one. The words I speak are the words of my Father. The works I do are the works of my Father. You see how he says to them in verses 13 and 14, pray to me, ask me, and I will do. If he is anything but one with the Father, if he is anything but God in the flesh, these are blasphemous words. This is heresy. He should be condemned and cast out. But if he is who he has said he is and proven who he is, then this is right of him to say. This proves his oneness. With the Father. When I return to the Father, you can be assured, he says to his disciples, that you have an advocate with the Father, me, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So the pathway to greater works for the disciples of Jesus is faith filled prayer. Faith filled prayer. Brother, sister, God's called you, as I just made the point to you, to faith filled action. There's works for you to do. God has an assignment for you. No matter your age, no matter your stage of life, we often check ourselves out of his assignment. We often want reassigned. Petition and lobby the Father for a a new spot, a new place, more enjoyable, more pleasant. God has a place for you. He's called you to it, and you alone. And there's things that he's designed for you to do in those situations and scenarios and relationships that he intends for you to do. Now, if you're like me, that is an overwhelming thought. That is paralyzing. 
especially when you think of all of the intersections of those responsibilities before the Father, all of the areas that He wants you to do good works in. It's paralyzing, and you're a failure at them, as am I, correct? You don't do them all like you should, and God knows this. And that can easily paralyze us and want to just kind of hunker down and just stick with the five or six things we can manage, or three or four, however we are, and just kind of pull out of some other things and just try to get through. Hunker down, hang on, and pray Jesus back. There's a different alternative presented in this discourse between Jesus and his disciples. It's a much better alternative. It's a God-glorifying alternative. It's a a joy-filled alternative. It's a hard alternative. It's a humbling alternative. But it's the the door you need to take. And it's the faith-filled prayer alternative. When confronted with all those responsibilities and realities in any given day that you cannot do in and of yourself, you're in the perfect spot to bend the knee before the Father and say, God in heaven, help me do the things you've called me to do today. Help me know what those are. Empower me by your Spirit to accomplish them. And then get up and move forward in faith Fervent in prayer and spirit as you go, but moving forward, doing. Now, from my limited experience and my flawed experience, I can tell you every time, every time, God will meet you with the strength and the ability and the power to do what He has called you to do. How many times have I cried out to the Lord on a Saturday night before standing behind this pulpit saying, pick someone else? I can't do it. I don't want to do it. Give me a different work to do. I will open the doors and set up the chairs. Let someone else do that. And you have your own example. And it is there that in faith I need to bow the knee and you need to bow the knee and say, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. And Jesus says, when you do, he will do it. He will help you. Kind of answered this question, but what kind of prayers has Jesus promised to answer? What kind of works has he promised to do? He says, whatever you ask, and if you ask anything then he will do it. Notice he specifies the promise. He defines the promise. He qualifies the promise. I don't think he limits the promise. I think that's a wrong word. He qualifies it. He specifies it. He identifies it. Here's the prayers he intends to answer. The first specification is that it's a prayer prayed in his name. The second is that it's to the glory of the Father through the Son. So to have a prayer Answered by the Son, we must pray within these qualified conditions. Pray in the name of Jesus. What does that mean? Is that like a magical phrase, an incantation, a chant you say at the end of your prayers? You know, pray for whatever you want and then throw in, in Jesus' name, and voila. Is that how that happens? We know not. I fear, however, we often pray that way. I often pray that way. Laying before the Father what I actually want and then thinking I can demand it in the name of Jesus. Well, praying in the name of Jesus, among other things it means, it means that we, we pray because of his merit. 
we're coming to the Father on the merit of the Son. Our entrance into that throne room in that moment is, is on the basis of Christ's righteousness and of his atonement for our sins. It also means coming in his name means we are dependent on his ability. So we're coming in his name dependent for him to do this. We can't do this, he must. So we're coming claiming his ability, denying any self-sufficiency and asking him to help. Praying in his name also means that we're seeking his will. We want an answer to this need and this issue that is in accord with his will. We're presenting a problem and saying, bring the solution in your time and in your wisdom that is in accord with your will. And then fourthly, we're praying for his purpose. To come in Jesus' name means we're praying for his purpose. We're seeking for whatever will accomplish his purpose, both in the immediate and in the ultimate. Meaning, if he determines that the answer to my prayer is wait, because in the immediate he has a different purpose than what I think a yes would do, then by coming in his name, I'm submitting to that. I'm agreeing with him. I actually want that more than I want what I want. Or I want you to help me want that more than I want what I want. When you boil all that down, it simply means that you're praying for what Jesus would be praying for. Isn't that what it means? To pray in the name of Jesus simply means you're praying for what Jesus would pray for. You're coming with his heart and his mind and his will and his wisdom, asking for the very things Jesus himself would be asking for. So to pray in a way that has this guaranteed success, we then must know the mind and heart and affections and intentions of Christ. This does not mean, don't hear me say this, that in the situations where you're not sure what God's will is, you're not sure what his mind is on the matter, that you should just not pray. Because you obviously can't pray according to his will, so don't, no, that's not what I'm saying. That's not what Scripture says. Like a child, bring your need to the Father and confess your lack of wisdom and your confusion. Lay it all before Him. Tell Him what you want Him to do. Tell Him what you think would be best and then leave that with Him. Trust that to Him as your eternally wise Father in submissive faith. You must pray in Jesus' name. The second qualifier is that it's to the glory of God through the Son. This is the ultimate accomplishment of the answer to our prayer that God would be answered, that God would be made much of as that prayer is answered. That also informs how we pray, right? So it kind of shapes the front end, knowing what the back end is going to produce. So I'm not going to ask on the front end for something that can never bring glory to the Father. It's just about my immediate comfort or, or my whatever. It's about me, not about Him. That's a prayer Jesus is not going to answer affirmatively. It's this kind of prayer then that's the outworking of your faith in Jesus. You believe him, you know him. In his absence, you work for him and you pray to him. Prayer that's in his name and for his glory. Crying to him to work through you that which you cannot do yourself. So brother, sister, where do you need help? Where is the weight overwhelming to you? Where is it crushing your soul? Where are you like, I can't do this, Lord? It's here that you need to bow before the Lord and say, I can't do this, Lord. You must.
Where is it that you're like Christian and faithful in Pilgrim's Progress who are trapped in Doubting Castle under giant despair, thinking that it's all going to end in death? We'll never get out, forgetting that you have within your bosom the very key of the gospel, to cry out to the Lord and to ask him for the help he is so willing to give. Where in your life, as a focus on others, a a judgmental spirit hamstrung you and kept you from further obedience and usefulness to our Lord? You're paralyzed by analysis of everyone else. I can't do that because of so-and-so. Brother, sister, it's here. You need to get on your face before the Lord and do business with Him about that. That is not your job. They are not your servant. They're His. Pray for them about that and leave it with Him. And then get busy seeking to do what He's called you to do. In His absence, He has great works for us to do, and He offers us great help. I barely have time, but I have to answer the gorilla-type question in the room. What happens when you pray according to God's will, in the name of Jesus, as best you know, for the glory of God, and there's no answer? What do you do here? And I know that's the question on your hearts, because you've all asked me that over the years. Probably been one of the most repeated questions I've had in pastoral ministry through decades of ministry. It's just common for people to wonder, why doesn't God answer that prayer? Three words to encourage you, pastoral encouragements, if you will, if you're in that spot. Pleading with the Lord, waiting on Him to answer, what do you need to hear this morning? I trust this is of the Lord. The first is evaluate. Evaluate. In light of this text and many others, evaluate what you're praying about and how you are praying for it. Let the non-answer be a purifier designed by God to help your prayers be all the more in line with the name of Jesus and the glory of God. Because certainly they're not perfect yet, right? You're not praying perfect prayers. None of us are. So let the waiting and the non-answer force you to work through your own motives and your own requests. What really is the heartbeat of your praying? Let God use that to teach you and instruct you. So evaluate. Secondly, wait. Wait. Psalm 130, the psalmist prays, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits for the Lord. And in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. Unanswered prayer is a unique time in the life of the Christian for the testing of our faith. James 1, 1 Peter 1, Romans 5, all make clear to you that your faith will be tested. If it's genuine faith, you'll be put to the test. And you'll be refined by your Father and come out the other side as refined gold. And unanswered prayer is one of those unique times of testing. It's in the depths of the despair and the difficulty of waiting on the Lord that you must wait on the Lord. It is not counterintuitive. It is the answer of Scripture. Wait for Him. Wait for him. Out of the depths, cry to him and wait for him. Thirdly, guard. Guard your hearts. While you're waiting, know that these are unique moments of unanswered prayer to be tempted in all kinds of ways. Satan is lurking about your life, looking for a moment to shoot his fiery dart into your your heart that is struggling with unanswered prayer. And so guard your heart so that you're not tempted to believe that God doesn't love you. 
that God doesn't care about you, that God's distant from you, that God's removed himself from you, that God wants something else to do in the world than deal with you. Guard your heart from all those thoughts of disbelief and heed the commendation of Philippians 4, 8. Finally, brothers, whatsoever things are true, think on these things. In the waiting, in the lack of answer, cry to the Lord to help you see what is true. This is not the only danger here. In our unanswered prayer, we're prone to judge ourselves inadequate and without enough faith, right? Waiting for the Lord to answer, we're just like, well, if I would just pray better, if I would just say it better, if I would believe more deeply in my soul, then, then God would be compelled to answer me. Right, we have already addressed. You can pray better. Let, let the waiting help you refine how you pray, but this is not the reason God's not answering you. Praying in faith, leave it with Him and do not believe those lies. And in our unanswered prayer, we're prone to envy others, comparing ourselves to them in light of God's blessing them and not us. Why do they have and I cannot? So many pits surround the journey of unanswered prayer. So I plead with you to guard your heart, for out of it flow the issue of life. Beloved, in the absence of Christ, there are great works to do, and there are great prayers to pray, and God will answer by his will for his glory. Let's go onward. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the privilege of hearing and heeding your word. We pray that you would take this truth and imprint it deep on our souls, so much so that we can't forget it tomorrow or Tuesday or next week. Would you fundamentally alter our nature and our character, conforming us more to the image of Christ because we have heard his word? So, Father, would you do this work in us for your glory? We trust it's in accord with your will. We know you will do it, and you will receive the praise. In Jesus' name.